Welcome to McGonigal's Chronicles, Making Montana Connections. I'm KRTV KXLH anchor Tim McGonigal. The end of February also marked the end of a career for one of Montana's most respected and knowledgeable political reporters. After more than 30 years of covering some of the Treasure State's most memorable and important events, Mike Dennison announced his retirement. During his illustrious career in both print and broadcasting, he had a front row seat to the fall of the once mighty Montana Power Company, to a teenager falsely accused of rape who waited 16 years to be fully exonerated, and much more. He interviewed polarizing politicians, and he talked to colorful state leaders, including the likes of the late U.S. Senator Conrad Burns and former Montana Governor Brian Schweitzer. Many of his moments in journalism are outlined in his book, Inside Montana Politics, a reporter's view from the trenches. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike Dennison. Well, it's always a pleasure to see Mike Dennison, uh, former um, Capital reporter, uh, chief capital correspondent for uh, MTN, and uh, Mike. It's I know it's been a little over a month since you filed your last report for uh, for MTN. Uh, are you one of those guys that uh, now that you're retired, uh, are, do you find yourself being more busy in retirement than you were when you were working, or are you uh, able to to sit back and relax? Yeah, um, probably the latter. Um, <laughs> I mean, certainly when you transition to that, there's a lot of there's a lot of what I call adult paperwork you have to take care of, and right. I'm pretty much of that. But uh, uh, what I've found myself doing is, uh, I think I've read like eight books in the last five <laughs> weeks. Um, it's great. Wow. And, uh, um, <clears throat> kind of taking care of things around the house, play golf once, a little bit of traveling. Yeah, I don't I, um, I don't feel compelled to uh, be doing things all the time. I've, I've actually had a couple of offers to uh, do some work-related stuff, okay, uh, which, and, uh, which I've uh, said no to and yeah. for the time being. Um, All right. Yeah, I don't feel compelled to uh, run out and start working again, that's for sure. Yeah. So that, that may come down the road, or, or, or you may stay golfing and just... I feel, I feel like summer <laughs> it's a great time to do nothing in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Mike, I know uh, it's it was an extraordinary journalism career, and um, I want to know though uh, how how you came to to Montana because, uh, as I understand, you did have a a Montana connection, even though you grew up in Seattle, right? That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Seattle. Went to high school there. Briefly went to college at uh, University of Washington, and then. Uh, but my mom is from grew up on a ranch outside of Missoula in Potomac, just up the Blackfoot from Missoula, about twenty some miles. And uh, we had always gone and visited there once a year, you know, during the summertime. And then I ended up um, transferring to the University of Montana when I was 20 years old. Um, I was in a creative writing program. And, um, oh, about a year into that, I thought, you know, what do you do when you get a creative writing degree? Do you, do you, how do you make any money? And I thought, maybe I want to have a job. So I started taking some journalism classes, just kind of on a whim, really. And uh, the next thing I know, I, uh, I'm a journalism major, along with being a, an English major, and found that I just really liked the people in journalism and just the whole idea of it, which just really appealed to me, um, being a writer, getting paid for it, and being involved in um, covering the news. And Because I'd, I'd always been kind of a bit of a news and political junkie before that. Uh, so it just seemed like kind of an actual thing. Like I said, all the people that I met in journalism who were really committed were just uh, my kind of people, just uh, very um, uh, involved with what just kind of um, 
following what's going on in the world and just being, and, and caring about it. So. Okay. Was there ever any uh, aspirations in, in high school or junior high to, to be a writer or uh, did, did that come, come later? Like you said, when you took the creative I, writing, I was, I was always, um, I think I always kind of wanted to be a writer and uh, I was like, you know, like writing stories in, in, in uh, junior high and high school, you know, fictional stories. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I never worked in the high school paper or anything like that. Um, journalism was something I never read. Like I said, I never really imagined until I was like 20, 21 years old. Okay. Well, we know how this uh, latest chapter of your life uh, ended, but uh, talk talk about uh, the beginning when you first got into after graduating uh, and and getting your, your first job. Talk about, uh, talk about the career path that kind of led you to to your latest. Sure. Um, you know, right up closely out of college in 1981, I uh, got a job working with the Great Falls Tribune as a reporter. And, uh, you know, I thought at the time, I thought the Great Falls Tribune was the best paper in the state. I think most people um, thought that as well. Most people in journalism and knew, knew anything about journalism thought it was the best paper in the state. So I thought, wow, this is great. And I uh, worked there for a while. Then um, um, my, my wife worked there too. She was not my, yet my wife, but uh, then we both got laid off on the same day. Well, they had some budget cuts. This was in uh, late 1982, and then then we then both of us worked for wire services, both in in uh, Montana and Seattle, and then later in Spokane. But then we moved back to Montana in 1984 when my wife, her name is Sue O'Connell, she got a job as the capital um, a capital political reporter for the Great Falls Tribune in Helena. And then um, I later worked with the Associated Press for quite a while, and she worked there. And then she left there when we had kids. Um, and then we moved to Colorado briefly when I was with AP, and we didn't like that at all. And then out of nowhere, um, the Tribune Capital Bureau, Chuck Johnson, who was uh, the reporter there, he decided to quit and go and work for lead newspapers. And so that job came open. That was in 1992, and I got it. So it was kind of weird. We came, we left Montana and twice came back because of the Tribune Capital Bureau, first for my wife and then for me. So that was kind of the beginning of my, my political reporting, reporting career, which then lasted for the next 30 years, essentially, um, with the Tribune, and then with Lee Newspapers, and then when Lee Newspapers in 2015 decided to um, sort of close their bureau um then i came over to work for mtn which was just uh really a godsend i mean i, th I thought my career was possibly over yeah and, and i became a tv journalist which was wonderful yeah when we talk about lee newspapers what uh, what collection of newspapers in montana at least is are, are we are we talking about yeah, we're talking about the uh the missoulian the montana standard and butte the billings gazette the helen independent record and also the uh, valley republican hamilton all owned by Lee, you know, they're kind of called the big four there, not, not including the Hamilton paper. Um, so they were kind of the, you know, the dominant print company in the state. And of course, we had the Great Falls Tribune, which was owned by Gannett, mm -hmm. uh, which was still you know, a competitor with them and not so much now. Okay. And uh, your wife was uh, big into journalism too. I bet that made for some lively discussions at the dinner table sometimes. Oh yeah. Yeah. She, uh, <laughs> Of course, she left journalism in the late 
1980. She worked a little bit after uh, we had our first son. Um, she was a part-time for the Associated Press. But then since then, she's had a couple of jobs. And, and she's been a researcher for the legislature, which is someone who you know writes bills, does other work for the legislature for the past uh, 17 years. Okay. We'll talk about the uh, the transition from print to TV for uh, for you. Uh, how how I mean, there's obviously differences. Uh, how how was it for you? Yeah, it was uh, probably a little easier than for a lot of people for a couple of reasons. One, you know, I had, I had worked for the Associated Press, at which I wrote broadcast copy, so I knew I knew how to write broadcast copy. I, I kind of knew the nature of it, so that was something. And then also. Um, I had a fair amount of background as a photographer. I mean, I worked as an intern. I was a photographer and did photography over the years. And so I always felt like, you know, I didn't know how to run a TV camera. I knew what a good shot looked like. Um, and then when I came on, of course, you know, I had some great training from the people who worked at MTN. Um, Jay Cohn, um, you know, the former ranker, and Paul Humphrey, a longtime cameraman in uh, Billings, and other people too um, in Helena just gave me some great training, just constantly, really. On I look at some of those first stories I did um, for TV, and I just go, "Oh my God, <laughs> what an idiot!" Man. <laughs> not, not an idiot, but just good. You, know, you look at those things and go, "What was I thinking?" As far as the, writing that that insanely long stand-up or having that <laughs> shot where I panned away and rather than just shot the shot, you know, things yeah. like that. You learn are. are not things you really want to do. But so, but like I said, I thought it was a, a transition that was, it took a while to kind of get used to it being on camera. Um, but once I did, it was fine. And I think that the biggest difference for me was that, um, you know, as a TV journalist, which I didn't really realize, you know, with the web and everything, you've got to do the TV story, you know, whether it's just the script or whether it's the whole package. And you got to write a web story. So essentially, you're writing, you know, one and a half or two stories, essentially, for every story you cover. And so it's very time consuming. So as a result of that, you just have to be very choosy on what you cover, because you're just going to cover less volume wise than you did as a print reporter. It's funny, you mentioned that you look back on some of those first stories, and you kind of scratch your head. And I've been doing this for over 30 years. And I, I still do that. Uh, even even today. <laughs> Yeah. Now, Mike, um, I know that uh, during your career, you've, you've seen a lot of changes as far as news and, and, and journalism. Uh, it, it, do you think it's headed in the right direction? I mean, some would say that uh, there's, there's more options for people to like news consumers to, to get their news, but a lot of times some of those options aren't quite the best sources, I guess. Uh, how, how do you look at the the current state of journalism and the in the future? How do you see it going? Yeah, that's that's a that's a very good question. I got asked that question a lot, and, and there's no easy answer to it. But yeah, you know, of course, the um, as we all know, you know, the big the big difference is, has been the internet. Uh, the yeah. the uh, rebel of the internet in the late 1990s has changed everything um, for better and for worse, and um, as far as for better, you do have access to all of these sources. Um, and as reporters, you have access to things that you didn't have that make the job easier. But um, on the other side, on the negative, you know, there's, there's a lot of negatives. Um, first of all, I mean, we have, you know, Facebook, Twitter, other social media platforms. People have all these access to all these 
uh, various outlets. I mean, people are always asking me, how do I determine whether the, what I'm reading is true or what I'm reading is credible? And I don't really have an answer for that. I mean, so so it's just kind of opened the door to all of the a lot of these sources which are um, not professional, incredibly biased, spreading misinformation all over the place. I mean, that's um, I don't know how to solve that. That's a tough one. And then secondly, you know, the internet has you know basically you know, destroyed the revenue model of newspapers, of daily newspapers, um, and so we have. Um, you know, newspapers, uh, I don't think they're ever going to recover uh, unless they're a, like a, a national digital um, item like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, something like that. And um, I think it's probably even probably taken a bite out of TV as well yeah. in terms of, you know, basically destroying the revenue model or, or hurting the revenue model of having advertising pay for your news gathering with a small subscription fee by the, by the consumer. And so before when we had TV and radio, local TV and radio, you know, those were kind of the gold standards and uh, made a lot of money. They had a lot of good professional people. Well, now, you know, that'll, that's not going to be the case. I mean, you have a lot of newspapers in very tough financial straits. I think it's hard for them to pay people well. And so you get what you pay for. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too. You mentioned uh, the Twitter, the Facebook, especially with the Twitter. It used to be, you know, uh, politician or a company leader would send out a press release or have a press conference and you get the soundbite on TV or radio. And now it's a, it's a tweet. That's, it's almost like people are taking that as the, uh, the source for information. And I never thought I would see that day. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another thing that's, that's changed in political reporting, especially is that with the advent of social media, politicians can avoid the experienced reporter the tough questions they can use they have their own platform they can communicate with before they had to go through the newspapers and tv stations now they don't have to now you know, like I, I i was still was kind of shocked when it just happened in the last few years that people say you know statewide politicians well i'm just communicating via twitter i'm not talking to you i'm just here's my statement on twitter that's it i'm just going yeah. And I, I think, too, that uh, and I was going to ask you about this, uh, the state of uh, politics uh, in in general, be, partly because of social media. Uh, it seems like there's a lot less uh, civility than there there used to be. I mean, you'll see people get on Twitter and they'll say things that you're like, would they have said that in a, a press conference or called that person by that name? Uh, what are your thoughts on the way things have I guess some would say have deteriorated among uh, the political decorum. Yeah, I would say so. And um, it's just, well, it's a lot more partisan you know, than it used to be sure. um, uh, in Washington, in Montana, probably everywhere for all we know. And I, I don't know how much the role of the uh, internet has played that. And certainly some role though. And like, as you mentioned, you think, see things on Twitter or Facebook where someone will just, uh, we're just, insult someone. I mean, it's so easy to be snarky and sarcastic and mean uh, when you're not talking to someone in person or you can just say, Oh, I'll just whip this off and just say, oh, look, look how stupid this guy is. Look how stupid you are for saying that. Um, it's very easy to do that when you're standing afar and, uh, and it's, and 
I think people have to resist that. And there, there are many times myself when I've sometimes posted a remark on Twitter and I thought, you know, why did I do that? Why, why, why did I sink to that level? Why, why didn't I just hold my tongue? I think you really have to kind of just uh, resist the temptation to be a smart ass. Yeah. Maybe Will Smith should stick to Twitter. And uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, Mike, um, I, I wanted to talk about, uh, and you saw it in the last, uh, well, I guess the last couple of legislative sessions that you covered. Uh, it, it seemed like there was a lot of that uh, um, uh, more partisanship uh, than, than we've seen in the past uh, here, here in Montana. And, and do you think that that's a result of, uh, I mean, President Trump was noted for uh, sending tweets out and saying, saying exactly what he felt. And that was a big draw for, for a lot of people to him. Do you think that that kind of carried over into Montana and even into some of the, the races and the Republican sweep that we had this last election? Well, probably. I mean, I, I think the Republican sweep we had in this last election, 2020, is a result of Montana becoming more Republican. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of the people moving to into the state have been probably leaning more conservative than not. Um, I think that's the main reason why. And also, we, you know, we had a huge turnout, all-male ballot, that was uh, unprecedented. You know, 95,000 more votes cast than any other election before. That's a huge amount in Montana. And the conventional wisdom before 2020 was that if there's that huge turnout, that's going to benefit Democrats because all these people are didn't vote. Now it's easier to vote. Are really kind of latent Democrats. Well, that turned out to be completely false. It's just, in fact, it turned out to be just the opposite. They were more latently Republican. And then when you gave them that ease of vote, they voted, they voted Republican. I mean, even the Republicans who won, you know, they expected to win most of those races, but they did not expect them to win by the substantial margins that they did. So that's why, and as far as, you know, the, uh, the tenor of politics, a lot of people have told me they think this last legislature was uh, a lot meaner than other ones before uh, maybe. Um, I guess I believe people when they say that. Um, you know, I covered a lot of legislatures back in the 1990s where Republicans controlled everything. Um, and there was a Republican governor, Mark Roscoe, but he wasn't as conservative as Greg Gianforte. And I mean, I don't think people were terribly nicer back then <laughs> than now. Uh, but I do think you mentioned President Trump. And one thing I think that President Trump uh, did, which I think is negative. He basically legitimized being a jerk. And, you know, I mean, people see the president acting that way, say, well, the president's doing it. Why can't I just be um, a jerk to my opponents and just rig more of the coals whenever I want to? All right. Well, we do have another election coming up here in uh, uh, November. Uh, obviously, there's a primary um, in the spring, but um, what do you are you do you think the Republicans will continue to hold control of all the uh, the, the House and the Senate in in Montana? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't have any doubt that Republicans will maintain control of the legislature. In fact, to I me, mean, I've heard I've heard Democrats say that they will consider it a success if they keep Republicans from gaining a two thirds majority of the entire legislature which means 100 seats out of 150. Right now, they control 98. Um, if I were a Democrat, 
I would hope that my goal would be higher than that, than I, <laughs> to just not lose badly and actually win. Uh, but no, I think that the Republicans certainly will control the legislature. It's just a matter by what margin. I think Democrats have a chance to claw a few back here and there. Um, and of course, the, the big race um, are the congressional races. The biggest race one is one on the Western, the new Western district. Is whether Democrats can win that or not. Um, it'll be tough. We'll see. Um, it depends on who turns out. This is an off-year election, so turnout is going to be nothing compared to what was two years ago when we had not only a presidential race but an all-male ballot. So it'll be much lower. We don't know who's going to turn out. That'll be a big. That'll uh, change things. And we also have uh, Supreme Court races um, that may or may not turn out to be interesting. Yeah. Those are the only statewide races on the ballot this year. You, you mentioned the uh, the Western uh, uh, District, Montana, now again back with two House seats. Uh, but that, that Western one, uh, I know there's a, a, a primary, but uh, the Republicans do have a a pretty well-known figure in there in, right. in, in Ryan Zinke. Uh, and uh, I mean, just by name alone, uh, he, it may be, like you said, it may be pretty tough to beat him. And uh, who, if you look at those Democrats, I think there's Cora Newman, Monica Trinnell, uh, Tom Winter, all very seemingly qualified people. And any of those, do you think, who, who do you think comes out of that race? And how do you think they stand up against Zinke? Well, Zicky is the man to be, no doubt about it. I mean, he's held the office, he's held congressional office before. He's the most widely known. Name recognition is a powerful thing. And um, the three Democrats you mentioned, Cora Newman, Monica Trinnell, Tom Winter, um, I'll bet if you went to 100 people on the street in Montana and asked those people, who are these people, that there'd be maybe maybe 10 of them who might know. So, uh, but you know, that'll change once the, once one of them wins the primary and they'll, they'll start campaigning more in earnest. They'll have some money behind them, I'm sure. I don't know which, which one of them is the best to beat Zinke. That's a tough one. Um, they all have their, um, their negatives, but the biggest negative is like, let's say lack of name recognition and uh, we'll see how that goes. And it's also, like I said, it's gonna, everyone now is talking about how this is going to be a Republican year. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that that is totally true. I mean, nationally, um, we'll see. Um, it could be, I mean, that's the conventional wisdom that the party not in power in the White House does better in the off-year elections. We'll find out. Okay. Of course, I don't want to slight the other Republican candidates in that race. Uh, I know Al Olszewski is running for that. Uh, and um, I, I think there might be one more, but that escapes me right now. But uh, Very odd from Kalispell is another yeah. In there, yeah, and, uh, and there's, there's, there might be another one too. There's, there's a lot of people running for the congressional seats. Yeah, yeah. Like well, and in, in the Eastern District, which almost nobody talks about, because we just assume that Matt Rosendale is going to win it. Right. Let's not forget about Gary Buchanan, who is a uh, longtime businessman from Billings, who's running as an independent. Okay. And uh, he has to get himself on the ballot first with a petition, but he's got petitions out there. And I, I bet he's probably going to get on their ballot. If he runs a credible campaign and, you know, does well in billings, um, boy, I don't know. That, that could be an interesting race. I mean, I, I don't know if he's going to win it, 
but if he could take enough votes away from Rosendale to give the Democrat a chance to sneak in there, who knows? It's just it's just a complete wild card. Yeah. Um... Mike, in your time uh, covering Montana politics, uh, what what maybe stands out as uh, the biggest surprise race? I look back to uh, then Senator Conrad Burns defeating John Melcher back in uh, what was it, nineteen eighty eight, maybe, and because there there was a case where a guy who maybe wasn't real well known took on the the big powerhouse and and beat him. But uh, what what about you? What are some of the yeah, that was memorable? That was really an upset. Um, none of us expected that to happen. Um, we just thought that Burns pity Melcher in no way. And then he, but he did it. Yeah, that was that was extraordinary. And then um, a couple other races Burns was involved in that, that I would point to and say these were interesting. One, Brian Schweitzer almost beating him in when was that? 2000, 2000 I believe it was. Okay. And uh, in fact, um, Burns's people actually told him on election day be prepared to lose. We think you're going to lose. That's what the polls are showing. There are internal polls, some are exit polls. So start preparing your concession speech. Didn't turn out that way. Returns in, in, in the late returns in rural areas came in much stronger than expected. He beat Schweitzer. But Schweitzer, you know, came out of nowhere and um, almost beat Burns. So that, that, was a, that was quite the race. And then, of course, six years later, John Tester beats Conrad Burns. And, uh, you know, that was a bad year for Republicans. And so they had to, Democrats had to win at their back a little bit, but still to knock off an incumbent like, uh, like Tester did was quite an accomplishment. And Tester seems to just run a close race all the time. And uh, that race, though, I think that that election had been held a week later. I think Burns would have won it. Well, you mentioned Brian Schweitzer. Uh, do you think that uh, his showing in that race helped him when he ran for, for governor? Uh, what was it, four years later, I guess, maybe? Or? Yeah, I think that it, I mean, it certainly put him on the political map. Mm-hmm. And I think that he physically, within a year after that loss, he was preparing to run for governor. And uh, which is kind of what you have to do anymore. Like right now, here it is, 2022. And I asked the Democrats, so who's running for governor against GN40 in 2024? Oh, there's plenty of people considering it. Well, I don't believe that. Um, I don't think they have a candidate yet. Mm. And the fact they don't have a candidate for Democrats is not good news for them. Yeah. Well, we mentioned some of the governors of Montana, Schweitzer, Roscoe, uh, GN40, and you've covered them and others. Uh, and I know that you cover that uh, in your book. Uh, some of those governors that you covered, uh, which governor stands out? I mean, I know they all had different styles of leadership. Uh, they all had different qualities. Uh, do, do any of those stand out uh, more or, or are they all just kind of uh, unique in their own way? And <laughs> well, you know, I think that uh, Brian Schweitzer, when people say, you know, all the governors you cover, which one do you think of is, who's your favorite, who's your favorite to cover? I don't know about a favorite to cover, but Schweitzer was the guy, I think, who was uh, unique in, in, in so many ways. And, and number one, that he, like I said, he kind of came out of nowhere, came out, came out of nowhere, out of the scene. But him winning the governorship, that was the first um, office he'd ever held, that he, that he won and actually held an office. And, uh, 
and he was such a showman. And um, also, the thing that I thought made him so effective is that until then, I thought the Democrats in Montana, you know, they just, they, they didn't really know or didn't seem to know or want to really play a hardball. And Republicans more than willing to play hardball and uh, to mix it up. And when Schweitzer became governor, he, he just he was just he just drove Republicans crazy because because they had never dealt with someone who would who would punch back as hard as he punched back, mm-hmm. and who would just take these guys and just just roll them and just had no regrets at all about just playing as as rough as you could. All right. Well, I know, you, like I said, you cover that in your book, Inside Montana Politics, a reporter's view from the uh, from the trenches. Tell us a little bit more about that book. I know it's been out now for a, a couple of years. Uh, t- talk about uh, what readers can expect when they when they pick that up, if they haven't already done so. Yeah, I was just looking at my uh, check-in account today, and I just got a, I got my latest royalty check for the last <laughs> six months last uh, year, $96.05. Hey. So, so still selling out there. That's good. <laughs> but... Yeah, no, that was published in 2019, and uh, I'd actually worked on it for, oh, the better part of a decade, just because I had a job with it. Also, it's kind of hard to write a book when you got a job, too. Mm-hmm. But um, what uh, the way it's organized is, you know, I wanted to write a book about um, historical figures that I covered, and I also wanted to write a book about what it's like to be a reporter. So it's kind of a combination history book slash, not a memoir, but just kind of a talking about my career, but it focuses on the biggest people and events that I covered. And uh, I did that because um, the best known fiction that I've read is based around people and characters. That's what makes them, that's what makes it compelling. And rather than just an issue or just a chronicle of historical events. So I organized each chapter around a, a, a big person, or a big event, like one was, you know, the rise and fall of Montana Power Company, uh, the, the prison riot in 1991. And then I also had, you know, three governors, three senators. And I also, and another story I covered about a, a fellow, his name was Cody Marble. This is like, uh, he was a 17 year old kid when he was accused of rape, falsely, I think. And then it took him um, 15 years to exonerate himself. And I wrote about, I was the first reporter to cover it. And wrote about that case, and I talked about that case as well. So I think if you re- read the book, you know you can read any chapter you want. It's not, and um, you can say oh, I'm interested in John Tester, I'm interested in Mark Roscoe, I'm interested in Montana Power. You can read read them all together, or you read them separately. They're all kind of little stories unto themselves, and I hope that there uh, people will find them interesting. I tried to kind of pick the the best parts out of, of what I cover and make it uh, a compelling read, but. When I, when I started writing the book, the uh, the Montana Power Company was always going to be the first chapter because it's probably the biggest story I've ever covered. So. Yeah, and um, what? Just briefly tell us, um, take us back, Mike, to to that Montana Power Company and what made that such a such a big story. Well, of course, it's about Montana Power's. Um, jump into quote-unquote deregulation, which is also what was called restructuring. This is in the late t- 1990s. Um, Montana Power, the people who ran the company, decided uh, we're going to um, 
we're, we're going to take we're, we're going to restructure in that we're going to have competition for the retail power for retail electricity. So instead of us doing everything having all regulated, we're going to deregulate the retail sale of power, and so you'll be able to shop for your suppliers. We'll still produce it. You can you can buy from us. You can buy from someone else, and we'll transport it and still be regulated. But the actual buying of the power will be competitive. And the reason this was happening was because the big industrial consumers of electricity were looking around the region and saying, oh, "I got it so much cheaper over here. I can buy wholesale power so much cheaper over in Washington or Oregon. Why can't I get that power?" So Montana Power said, "Okay, we'll just we'll do this." Well, when we covered this, when I covered this. I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, here's Montana, the most remote market in the country for electricity. I mean, not very many people far away from population centers. There is some power production here, but we're the most remote market, one of the smallest markets, and we're already paying some of the lowest electricity prices in the nation. Why is this a good idea? Who's going to want to come and compete for us in Montana? Nobody. And so I always thought something's wrong here. And initially, um, it looked like I was wrong and that it was a huge success for Montana Power. But then, of course, the whole thing fell apart. They went bankrupt. Tons of people lost tons of money. Um, they became a telecom company. And at just at the start of, of cell phones and just this rapacious com competition in a, in a new industry they weren't that familiar with. And so that's and it destroyed the company. And those shareholders, uh, at one time, those shares were worth $60 or more, I think. And by the end, it was 30 cents or something. It actually, the time that it, from when it started um, up to its height, this, the, the value of their stock was 600 times, or six, um, six times, so 600%, six times the value of what it was when it started. So you had a, you had a twenty dollars. It was it was up to actually one hundred and twenty dollars. They split oh. it, so it was at sixty. Still, it, it was so it sextupled in value, gotcha. and then it became worthless. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, for people that want to get that book and uh, learn more about your life and uh, the trenches, uh, how how can they do that? Is it is it available at most bookstores or? Uh, yeah, you can still find it at bookstores. Um, you can also you can. You can even email me, Madison5 um, <laughs> at gmail.com. I have copies. I'll sell you one. Okay. Uh, or if you see me, see me around town, tell me and I'll just, I'll sell you a copy. But yeah, it, it, it's still in bookstores pretty much around the state. Do you have any plans to write another book at some point or is that pretty much it? You know, <laughs> a lot of people ask me that question. The first thing I say is, yeah, that was a lot of work right now. <laughs> but <laughs> I'll think about it. Uh, I actually had to drop about seven or eight chapters that I'd written um, on some lesser figures that I covered that I thought were really interesting people. And I suppose that could be a foundation for another book. I don't know, but uh, yeah, writing a nonfiction book, um, as anyone's done it knows, it's a lot of work um, because you have to, um, you've got to make sure everything is absolutely accurate. You've got to have an index. You've got a bibliography. You got to get photos. It's just a. It's a lot of work. Mm. So uh, I'd rather spend more work right now working on my uh, golf handicap <laughs> and my ski technique 
and my uh, travel skills to see my children across the country, et cetera. So there you go. Well, Mike, thank you. Uh, I know on behalf of all the the readers that you had, the viewers that watched you on MTN, uh, thank you so much for for a great career and. Uh, I know maybe we'll never say never, but uh, for now, I know you're enjoying retirement and we thank you for taking time to talk today. Thanks, Tim, been my pleasure. And I also want to say thanks to all of the uh, you know people at MTN, which they were great. And all of my listeners, readers, and viewers over the years have been wonderful as well. You've been listening to a conversation with Mike Dennison, a longtime journalist and up until the end of February, the chief political reporter for the Montana Television Network. You can subscribe to McGonagall's Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts, and I invite you to leave a review of the show. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be back soon with another interesting guest with a Montana connection. Until then, for McGonagall's Chronicles, I'm Tim McGonagall.